0: Good morning, 1548 Heights, members and friends online and in person. Grace and peace to you in abundance. So good to see you this morning. Related to the announcement Alan made earlier, earlier, I want to tell you how excited I am about the arrangements our leaders have made for the transition after Angela and I move up to the Pacific Northwest. David Fleer is an outstanding preacher, and he will do a great job also as a consultant working with our leadership team and our search team to help us move forward and find the next preacher. Uh, You may not even be able to envision him. Here's a picture of him, David Fleer. Uh, he, he, He was actually, what is there something else up there? Oh yeah. That's just my imagination, but I I feel like he would have wanted to say that if he was He was actually uh, uh, my professor in my doctor of ministry class for preaching, and he knows his stuff. So you will be in good hands from the pulpit when he is here. Mark October 8th on your calendars. uh, That is our next Baptism Sunday. If some of you have been praying about and pondering whether you would like to be baptized into Christ, we like to designate a certain day, have the baptismal ready, and just invite those who are ready to do that. I think some of you are, and I hope I can maybe uh, persuade you and encourage you to do that, so mark that date on your calendar. Our mission at 1548 Heights is to be a transforming church, changing lives for God and for good in the world. As God transforms us into the image of Jesus. We've got a great future ahead for us. I'm starting a series today, Uh, you know, first Sunday after Labor Day weekend is always a great time to start a series. I'm calling this Encountering Jesus, and I'm using as a conversation partner a book by Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Jesus. Here's a picture of that, Confronting Jesus, Nine nine Encounters with the Hero of the Gospels. I'm not calling it Confronting Jesus, because I ain't going to confront Jesus, okay? I'm just going to encounter Jesus. And we're going to look at all the ways in which uh, Jesus makes himself known to us as teacher, as healer, as Lord, as Lamb of God, etc., etc. And today we're going to talk about Encountering Jesus the Teacher, encountering Jesus the teacher and so let's read together Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 through 29 this is at the end of Jesus sermon on the mount which is a compilation of perhaps the the the, the central teachings Jesus gives to us and at the end of this Jesus says everyone then who hear this, hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were, crowds were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Thanks be to God for his word and for his living word, Jesus Christ. The crowds exclaimed that Jesus teaches as one having authority because the, 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 the regular way that rabbis taught was to cite Uh, their sources, to say, and as such and such a rabbi has said, and therefore get, you know, rely on the authority of others as well as their own, Jesus doesn't do that. He just teaches. And he he implies, I have my own authority. And so, here's how I would sum up, as we begin to look at Jesus, encountering Jesus, the teacher. Jesus, the teacher, challenges everyone. Jesus the teacher challenges everyone. This is where your outline begins if you find it helpful to f- follow along using that, your outline in the bulletin. I mean, uh, speaking to the Pharisees, right? They, they were very family oriented and Jesus says, well, aren't you so family oriented? Instead of helping your elderly parents, you say, oh, well, we've given money to the poor. We can't do that. And he challenges them with that teaching. He says to some very scrupulous religious people, you tithe mint and cumin and dill. They're so scrupulous about tithing that they tithe the spices in their cabinet. He says, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice. He challenges the religiously scrupulous by the way that he interacts with so-called sinners, those who are not religiously active. He's, Jesus challenges everyone to those who are not religious. Jesus says, here's the two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You, you know, there's things that God expects of you. Jesus talks about almsgiving for the poor. And, and so, whether he's speaking to the religious, the irreligious, Jesus challenges everyone. No one can just stand aside and say, boy, I'm sure he, I'm sure glad he's teaching those people because they need to hear this. No, when we do that, all of a sudden, we find some teaching for us. At one point, Jesus tells what we call the parable of the workers in the field. Here's a depiction of that by the great uh, uh, artist Rembrandt in the 17th century. It's kind of dark, but uh, the parable goes like this. A, a manager goes out and needs workers in the field, so he hires some people in the morning. But then he needs more, so he hires some people in the mid-morning. And he needs more, and he hires some people in the middle of the day. And then in the middle of the afternoon, at the, at the last part of the day with just about an hour left, he hires some more workers. And then at the end of the day, he pays them all the same. <laughs> and who do you think's upset about that? The people who work just an hour? And got a full day's wage? No, the people who worked a full day and got a full day's wage. And the master says, well, wait a minute. Did I not pay you what I told you I would? Am I not allowed to be generous to those whom I decide to be generous with? And so Jesus challenges us who are fixated on fairness and says, no, there's more than that. Yeah, as Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do. <laughs> Jesus' teaching will challenge you because it's understandable. And you go, wait a minute. That's for me as well. Make this note. Jesus' teachings undercut our neat modern categories our neat modern categories. You know, uh, for instance, you say more conservative-minded people love to think of Jesus as, as a paragon of family values. Then Jesus uh, says, you know, if you want to follow me, you've got you to hate your father and mother and sister and brothers comparatively. What? As one scholar put it, Jesus broke a lot of, a lot of uh, Palestinian mothers' hearts by calling away their sons and daughters Uh, for conservative minded people who, who think that capitalism is the greatest gift of God in the history of the world Jesus talks about serving the poor and tells a parable about the sheep and the goats and how we'll be judged by how we treat the least and the lost to those more progressive minded Jesus talks about sexual sin and says, you know, uh, you're you're worried about not committing adultery. Let me tell you, there's a lot of other ways to be outside of God's will sexually. And he tells the parable of the talents about investing what God has given to us. To those who are particularly militant-minded, Jesus talks about uh, loving your enemies No one can go unchallenged by Jesus' teachings, and particularly in our kind of polarized day where we categorize people, conservative, liberal, progressive, traditional, all this, Jesus doesn't go by those categories. And so uh, here's how McLaughlin puts, puts it in her book. She says, Jesus talks more about love across differences and inclusion for the marginalized than the most tender-hearted liberal, and yet he issues terrifying terrifying warnings of God's judgment. He eviscerates those who think they're swaying God with their religiousness, and yet he says that loving God trumps everything. He calls us not to judge lest we be judged, and yet he says that one day he will judge us all. Jesus' moral standards are so high that we don't have a hope in hell of reaching them. And yet he welcomes the most abject moral failures. Here's how I would put it, friends. To even want to follow Jesus' teachings depends on believing in him. To even want to follow Jesus' teachings depends on believing in him. This is why so often Jesus will say, Whoever would follow me, let him or her do this. He puts the following First, Uh, it's very intriguing. Luke chapter ten, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Anybody you hear that phrase, the Good Samaritan? That's right. It's part of our Western lexicon now because of the parable. But the parable really has three levels. The first is what happens before Jesus tells the parable. A teacher of the law says to him, "Uh, Lord, what is is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, what do you think? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered well. And the teacher of the law says, well, who's my neighbor? And Luke tells us the teacher of the law asked that because he was seeking to justify himself. Now, that's the first level. So the parable goes like this. You know it. A a man is uh, traveling along the road, and he's attacked by robbers and left there for dead. And a Jewish priest goes by, and instead of stopping to help, uh, like Melissa did, you know, in her story, uh, he goes by on the other side. And a Levite, another religious Jew, goes by, same thing, doesn't help, passes by on the other side. A Samaritan goes by, sees him, stops, helps him, takes takes him to a motel, tells the innkeeper, I'll pay for anything that he needs, and I'll be back in a few days to settle up. And Jesus says to the teacher of the law, which of these was a neighbor to the man? And the teacher of the law could not even say the Samaritan because Samaritans were so despised and looked down on. And he says, well, the one who helped him, and Jesus says, go and do likewise. And so that's, you got the second level, which is the moral example level. Hey, help people in need. That's a good thing. So in Western society, we have the Good Samaritan law. We have the Good Samaritan. Charities are called Samaritan, okay? But the third level is that, Samaritans were despised by the Jews. And the last thing the teacher of the law wanted to hear was, a Samaritan is a better neighbor to someone than you are, and a Samaritan is your neighbor. See, that third level, we we often wanna stop at the moral example, but the third level is the level of the heart. The level of the heart. And so how can anyone wanna do this? Uh, McLaughlin says, this is like in, in the deep south, in the first part of the 20th century with the Jim Crow laws, and someone tells a room full of white, racist people that the hero, tells them a story and says, and the hero was a black man. Or this is like someone speaking at the Democratic National Convention and telling a story and the hero is Donald Trump. Sorry, I mean, you know it's it's that it's that greeting, it's that greeting. who wants to live like this? I don't want to, but if I, if I believe in Jesus I'm called to and so it, really thinking about following Jesus' teachings really depends on believing in him uh, McLaughlin cites a book by a man named Tom Holland. Let me just tell you a little about about him first. He's a a popular historian, which doesn't mean he has a big fan club or anything. It means he writes for the popular audience, the the mass audience, not for other scholars. He grew up with an atheist father in England and a devout uh, Anglican mother. And he says, I learned to associate Christianity with kindness and compassion and decency. So I never bought into all this idea that, you know, the Christian faith is oppressive and this or that. No, no, no. But I, I, I can't make the leap to the supernatural. I, I just can't uh, grasp that. And so I'm not a Christian. You know, I'm whatever, agnostic, but I'm not a Christian. But I'm not angry at Christians. Well, his passion was classical antiquity, ancient societies, And he began writing books that delve deep into Roman and Greek society. And he made a discovery. Let's read what he says. Here's his latest book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Next one. He talks about how uh, Constantine became emperor in three 37, I think, 337 AD. And Constantine embraced Christianity. And pretty soon, Christianity was not just legal, but Christianity was preferred. And so Christians had a a big platform. Uh, And Constantine was succeeded in 367 AD by his nephew, Julian. And Holland says, Emperor Julian, quote, committed himself to claiming back from the church those who had, quote, abandoned ever-living gods for the corpse of the Jew. (laughs) He wouldn't even say Jesus. (laughs) And in his mind, the ever-living gods, the living gods, were the Roman gods. And so Julian is trying to win back Romans who had become Christians and become part of the church. Well, it's almost comical. At one point, he writes a letter to the high priest of Galatia, present-day Turkey. High priest means a Roman priest. And read what he says. He says, how apparent to everyone it is and how shameful that our own people lack support from us. When no Jew ever has to beg... And the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the Christians are making us look bad. (laughs) They're not only caring for their poor, they're caring for our poor. And he writes the high priest of Galatia kind of saying, why is this? And we need to do something about it. And you can almost see the poor high priest of Galatia. You know, he's just a little guy. And, oh, the emperor wrote me. I better do something. He hangs a banner out on his temple. Care for the poor. And the Romans, like, look at it. And they just laugh. Why? None of our gods care for the poor. We've never cared for the poor. I mean, you might as well... Put up, eat more grapes or something. I mean, it's just, it's, it's silly. And Holland tells that story because he discovered with his passion for classic antiquity that all the things he values so much as a part of the Western world, um, the inherent worth of every person, the ultimate virtue of suffering rather than causing others to suffer. Uh, The the virtue and the need to care for the poor and oppressed. He thought all those came from the Greco-Roman world, and he realized, no, they came from the church. Those were the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus had believers who took those seriously and put them into practice to where they became sort of a societal value, and no one knows where they came from anymore, but I'll tell you where they came from. Read what he says. He says that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not even remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman general would have laughed at it. The origins of this principle, as Nietzsche, the German atheistic philosopher, had contemptuously pointed out, lay not in the French Revolution, not in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. Everybody knows how the U.S. Constitution starts, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal right. Where does that come from? From the Bible, from Jesus' teachings, and yet we take it for granted. We had a great budget workshop on Saturday, yesterday. How many times have you heard that said, budget workshop? Great budget workshop. And someone commented, looking at all the numbers, we're putting together a budget for uh, this year and next, thanks to Alan Kramer's leadership. And someone said, good-naturedly, wow, we spend more on coffee than we do on benevolence. Part of me was like, what's your point? (laughs) Coffee in the morning, I don't know. I call that spiritual formation. (laughs) But what we concluded was, listen, we may not have a benevolence ministry per se, although we are starting one. But all four of our mission partners, to whom we give a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars a year and support and volunteer with him, uh, Heights Interfaith Ministries Food Pantry. Um, what's the one, G? Sorry. What? Main Street Ministries here in Houston, Arms of Hope, Uh, single poor mothers, and uh, Yvonne, what? E2 Brazil, and E2 to you too, okay? Uh, But they all help the poor. And why do we take that as a given? Because of Jesus' teachings. And so, really, this stuff is so hard, you really have to believe in Jesus to want to even try to follow, and and Jesus knows that this has to, it has to start from the deep inside, read what he says in Mark chapter 7, see the religious people were so, so, uh, so fixated on what went into you, what do you eat, what do you drink, and Jesus says, it is what comes out of a person that defiles, for it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, Adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come within, and they defile a person. And so Jesus knows. Jesus knows, ultimately, this calls for a heart change. This calls for a heart change. And so Proverbs 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. Psalm 51, the great psalm of repentance. Create in me a new heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Here's a diagram I think captures this. If you try to follow Jesus' teachings without acknowledging Jesus' lordship, it's going to be like a plant without any roots. I mean, you're just not going to have the, the sustenance, the... the the rootedness to carry that out if you see this just as a sort of moral virtuous life it's too radical it's too radical uh you know there there's a there's a kind of a a a cultural feeling that yeah i know i have my little peccadilloes or my 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 things but deep down i'm a really good person Deep down, I'm a really good person. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus doesn't teach that. He says, no, deep down in your heart, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be oh, redeemed. It reminds me of the time I tried to grill steak. I was so impatient, you know, and, and and I put it on, and you know, it looked good to me. It started to smell good, so I took it off. It looked like this, you know. That's what... We think that, oh, if we just go deep down, that's all goodness there. No, the Bible says no. Uh, Jeremiah says the the human heart is deceitful above all else, it is perverse. Who can understand it? And Jesus knows that ultimately it's, it's a heart change, and that's why he tells, he calls for heart change. In closing, Martin Luther and the church reformers saw Jesus' teachings and particularly the Sermon on the Mount as so radical and difficult that they basically threw us into the arms of God's grace. (laughs) You want to try to be virtuous on your own? You want to try to be good on your own? Here it looks like. And they said, you will be thrown into the arms of God needing God's grace if you try to live these out on your own but make sure to understand they weren't saying ignore these they were saying lean into these uh, give yourselves to these and you won't be able to fulfill all of them God's grace will carry you but this is the way to live this is why Jesus says at the end of his sermon on the mount look This is like building your house on a foundation. I know it's radical. I know it seems nonsensical to you. I know it's very hard. But I promise you, I promise you, your life and the life of those around you will be better. And so Jesus teaches with his authority. I want you to follow my teachings. Let me ask you a question What is your foundation? What is your foundation? Are you like that uh, that plant that's, you know, trying to live live for God here and there, but ultimately you don't have that root? That's, that's what giving your heart to God through Jesus is about. It's saying, Lord, I know I need to be renewed, reborn, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me on the cross so that I can live in your grace. Friends, teach. Jesus' teachings are beautiful, they're radical, they're hard, and in God's grace they become a way to live that is like a sure foundation for us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, so much that you don't you don't just say, "Oh, well, I love you, so just live any way you want." You give us some really really difficult and and good and substantive ways to live and Loving our enemies, my goodness. Choosing to be uh, sexually uh, disciplined, wow. These are tough. Uh, We know, Lord, that where you call us, you provide for us. You provide your grace. You provide your provision. So thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, our teacher, we pray. Amen.